Good morning, everybody. Nice to see everybody. Uh, good to see that everyone has apparently survived uh, another Christmas season. Um, but it's great to be back together and, and worshiping and rejoicing with one another as we prepare for a new year. But I, 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 I want to, to know that I hope that this holiday season, this past Advent, even this past week, I hope that you have been able to find some time amidst all of the, the chaos of, of Christmas and, and presents and family and how many times you have to watch Die Hard or A Christmas Story, whatever is your Christmas movie of choice, I hope that you were able to find some time. Yes, I did just refer to Die Hard as a Christmas movie. But I hope that you were able to find some time to actually just sit down and relax. To, to stop and take a breather because sometimes life, especially life during the Christmas season, it can be so hectic that I hope that you were able to just slow down and relax. Um, for Amy and I sometimes, especially lately, one of our, our favorite things to do to relax is we, we scroll through Netflix and we find comedians. Like we love watching different stand-up comedians uh, not just because it's funny, not just because it makes us laugh, but I love the outlook on life from the viewpoint of a comedian because they take the same mundane things that you and I see every single day and they look at it through a, 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 different, a different lens. That they, they take this thing that, that you're so used to seeing every day and then they put a twist on it. And that, that brings the punchline, which hopefully makes you laugh. But it, it's, there's a sense of refreshment of just taking these things that you're so used to seeing and seeing them in a fresh and humorous way. And so for us, that's one of our favorite ways to relax is to see the humor that other people find in life. But one of the, one of the comedians that we were watching recently uh, was uh, it was the, the recent stand-up from Ellen DeGeneres. And uh, regardless of what you may or may not think about her, uh, her beginning and the core of who she is as a performer, she's a comedian. That's her heart, and that's what, why she does what she does, is to make people laugh. But it was interesting because at the end of her recent stand-up, she actually had a question and answer time where people could come forward and ask questions about uh, either her, her personal life, her stand-up, whatever. And then she would just kind of give a, a blunt and honest answer. And there was a question that someone asked about her overcoming the adversity that she's been through over the past few decades. And her, her answer was both interesting and depressing. Because the answer that she gave uh, basically boils down to you have it within you to overcome adversary, uh, ad, uh, adversity. If you want something bad enough, what is in you will rise to the surface and you can overcome. And I know, especially like in uh, in an a environment where everyone's kind of on the, the same page and tracking along with you, that there's a sense where that almost sounds like, yeah, you're right, I can do it, I can overcome and then there's the, the cheesy Christian, I'm an overcomer, and, and I'm not even going to go off on that tangent. But it's depressing. Because I don't know if you've ever hit that place in your life 
where you feel like you've hit rock bottom. But when you've hit that point where you have nothing left in you, you realize you don't have it in you. You don't have the strength when, it's, when it feels like one failure after another. Or when yet another person has walked out on your life or your heart. When the, thing, the life that you have so carefully crafted and tried to hold together starts falling apart, at a certain point you have to realize and admit that you don't have it within you to rise up and overcome. But that's what Christianity is all about, is not just the acknowledgement that you don't have it in you, but that we are trusting and resting in the power of a God who intervenes on your behalf and overcame on your behalf. That's the, that is what we, we celebrate and worship and come together for. And so when we read this passage in James chapter 5, finally coming back and wrapping up James, I would argue that James is saying that all believers should and can rest in the power of God. And I know that sounds very vague and abstract to just say, well, just rest in the power of God. What does that even mean? What, how, how do you tangibly put an image on that? How do you apply that to everyday life? Especially when the, the chaos of life starts blowing everything up, when your relationships might be struggling, when especially post-Christmas going into the new year and you look at that, that uh, if you still have credit cards, you look at the debt that you've accumulated through Christmas or over the year and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And to say that a believer can rest in the power of God amidst all of those circumstances or whatever you might be dealing with, it sounds intangible. But thankfully, James gives us three examples of how all believers can and should rest in the power of God. First, in verses 13-16, through it's by being people who pray for people. Secondly, in verses 17 through 18, it's by being people who pray for purpose. And thirdly, in verses 19 and 20, it's by being purposeful people. Before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we can come together and sit in Your Word that we can look and see what Your Word has not just said to the church for generations, but what it speaks into the chaos of our lives today. So God, in this time that we were together, I pray that You would pour out Your Spirit in this place, that You would be present with us. That You would speak through a broken man like myself. That Your Gospel truth would not just rest on my ability to perform, but God, that Your Gospel truth would be carried by Your Spirit to Your people for Your purpose. Be with us now. We pray in the power and the name of Christ. Amen. Now we've been out of James for a, a few weeks. We took a break to go through the, uh, the Advent season. And I was hoping to have James wrapped up 
before Advent, but for some reason a hurricane throws everything off, and, and so, but we're, we're catching up now, but it's actually kind of interesting because we're about to go into a new year where we're going to be spending the month of January looking at the importance and the power of prayer and the end of James. Is the be- it's, it's the culmination of everything that he said, and he's resting and closing his letter to the church on the power of prayer. And so, it's almost like God had foreordained this to be a perfect segue for us to talk about prayer next month. Uh, but to give a quick recap, James is writing to a Christian audience that has fled for their lives. The, the church is in a, a period of history where believers are being persecuted for their faith. And so James describes this as the dispersion, that the the believers have dispersed, that they've fled for their lives, uh, for their families, for protection. And so James is writing to these believers uh, in the midst of persecution and speaking to what the gospel has to say in the midst of their chaos. And repeatedly he reminds them that faith without works is dead. That it's not just enough to say that you have faith, but that faith has to drive a believer to action. And that's shown in a believer's behavior. It's shown in a a, a believer's speech. It's shown in a believer's even very thought life. That there's this overarching theme of humility. To not think more highly of yourself than you ought to. In fact, James says in, in, in 4.6 uh, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That the action and the very life of a believer should be modeled by a faith that leads to a humble and obedient action. And then just before we get to the, today's passage, he gives a warning to, to rich oppressors, the people that have accumulated wealth and that they are are hoarding it for their own selfish gain. And then he begins talking about patience and suffering. And that patience actually segues James into this passage on prayer. And he starts in verse 13 by saying, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. He's saying, in all situations that you find yourself, the appropriate response for the believer is to pray. And I know that's the complete opposite of the cultural worldview, especially what I was just talking about, because Ellen DeGeneres did not come up with the the mantra of, you have it within you. That's the human nature that's naturally in all people, in me, in you, is to think that we have it within us to overcome whatever adversity is facing us. That is the natural human worldview. And James says, Christians don't have it within you. But instead, we focus on the one who does. So James is showing that Christians should not just be known as people who pray, but people who pray for people. And I don't know about you, but far too often I've seen uh, the the times where someone has come up 
and shared some sort of burden that they're struggling with, something that's going on in their life. And for the Christian, for far too often, the response is, oh, well, I'll pray for you. And then you walk away and get back to your daily life and never actually do anything for that person. Because it sounds nice, there's a sense of reassurance. Oh, yeah, well, well Jim said he's going to pray for me. That's great. But Jim never does. And I'll admit, I've done this myself to say, oh, well, I'll pray for you. And then I put my phone back down and just get back to whatever it was that I was doing and never take the time to stop and pray for that person. Or in the midst of tragedy, when we see uh, cultural crisis one after another of school shootings or, or things like this, the, the overwhelming response that you see from the church in the media is, our thoughts and prayers are with you. And it's said so much that it just sounds like a hollow and empty response. Thoughts and prayers. To the point where, what does that even mean anymore? It just sounds like a, a flippant response. That's not what James is saying about praying for people. This, this is a type of prayer that steps into the situation with a person. When James is talking about anyone suffering, let him pray. This prayer is not the removal of suffering, but endurance during suffering. Without getting into all the technicalities of of all of the the Greek grammar, the the word used here is the same word for prayer that that Paul often uses in his letters when he's talking about uh, his suffering and the, the prayer that he's requesting for the strength to endure. And even in 2 Timothy 4, when Paul urged, or when he is encouraging Timothy, the encouragement that he gives him is to endure suffering. Not avoid suffering, not pray that God would take the suffering away, but that the believer, for the Christian, we pray to endure suffering. And it's okay to pray for yourself. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel a little selfish praying for myself, but we're told to come to the Father, to the King, to the Creator, and to pray and to bring our requests to Him, and He provides. And so when you pray for yourself, pray for endurance in your suffering that God will step into your suffering with you and carry you through. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praise. That this is a prayer of rejoicing. The the songs that we sing, this is not just singing. These are prayers of God's people saying this is what we heart we, we want our hearts to express this. There's a beauty of God's people coming together and to sing these songs and these hymns because it's lifting these prayers up in song. And so James says, if you are cheerful, sing praise because it takes your eyes off of yourself. When everything seems to be going right, it's so easy to focus on the things that we have or the blessings or even just our very selves. 
and say, man, life is good right now. But to sing praise takes that focus off of yourself and it thanks the one who has made you cheerful. And then he says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And this is where it gets a little weird, especially for us in our American, uh, especially Presbyterian context, because for those of you that, uh, like me, might not have grown up in the church, you read that and like, what do I even do with that? For those of you that have been uh, in, in the, a Presbyterian church for a long time, you might even be like, that sounds a little too Pentecostal for me. But it, it's, it's difficult because he doesn't give any explanation of what the anointing with oil specifically does. And even theologians and uh, uh, pastors and scholars have debated what exactly is James saying here about the oil? Because we don't, we're not given a clear answer. There are some thoughts that it could have some medicinal properties that when the elders in the New Testament church would pray over people and anoint them with oil, that there was this expectation that the oil itself had medicinal properties that would assist, that the prayers would assist the medicine of the oil to bring health and healing to the people. But that's not ever clearly defined. There's some people that, that suppose that the, the anointing with oil is a symbolic gesture. Because Jesus Himself would use physical props when He would heal people. He healed a blind man by spitting in the dirt, making mud, and rubbing it on his eyes. Wipes it away, he can see. He healed a deaf man by sticking his fingers in his ears. And it's like one of those things where it's almost like you're watching like an episode of The Office or something, just the absurdity of what just happened. And Jesus uses these physical aspects to provide miraculous results. And the healing is not in the mud. The healing is not in the fingers and the ears. The feeling or the healing is in the faith that accompanies them. And so some scholars have supposed that the anointing with oil in itself does not bring healing, but that it is, it, it, it's a, symbi- a symbolic act of faith of, of anointing someone with oil and praying over them. It's a reminder of God's blessing. But here's the thing that is clearly shown, is that this is actually part of the job requirement for an elder. To pray, not just for God's people, but to pray for the sick within the church. To go and meet with the sick, to lay on hands, to pray fervently and passionately and faithfully over them. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And this this is where the passage gets really difficult. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure that every person in here can think of someone who has struggled with sickness or illness or crippling disease, and you have prayed that person to be healed, and it didn't happen. 
pray for the sick, and sometimes that healing doesn't come. And I don't know if you've ever heard this, but I've specifically heard people say, well, you just didn't have enough faith when you prayed. And I hear that, and it makes my blood boil. To say that basically you were not a good enough Christian to pray and heal that person. Because what that's saying is that you were not enough to save that person. And it's taking the faith off of God and putting it in the ability of the person that's praying. But James doesn't give us answers and explanations. He, he leaves that struggle open. But what he does say is that the prayer of faith will save the one that is sick. Not heal, but save. And I think sometimes we get so wrapped up in the temporary afflictions of this broken world that we mix the two together. Thinking that someone with with cancer or leukemia or or AIDS or whatever that affliction may be, even if it's a, a common cold or pneumonia or whatever sickness you're praying over to think that well if that's if that sickness goes away then the person is saved no no no. James is saying that there's a difference in the temporary earthly saving and the saving of eternal consequence and sometimes they go together sometimes the healing and salvation are mixed together but James is more passionately concerned about the healing for eternity, of praying for a person's soul. And then he leads that, that prayer, that, that sense of healing from sin to the church and to the, the body of believers themselves. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James is saying that that is the healing that you need. The healing that you need is not just for your cold to go away. The healing that you need is not just that uh, so-and-so's pneumonia or whatever ailment will, will help will leave and that they'll be healed and and praise God. No, James says that the healing that you need is not mental illness. It's not from sickness. It's not from uh, a lack of self-esteem. He says that the healing that you need is from sin. Because sin is what causes that sickness and death and destruction. When sin was introduced into the world, It brought death with it. It brought destruction with it. And so James says, confess to one another. Don't bottle up your sin. Don't hide from one another. But be open and honest and confess to one another. And that's one of the most difficult aspects of authentic Christianity because it requires Openness. It requires honesty. It requires a great 
deal of humility to let someone else in to the darkness of your heart and say, this is the sin that I struggle with. Your confession does not heal you. Your confession does not save you. But it invites others into your struggle and you into theirs. How many people in here can honestly say that you can pray not just for other people. I can pray for anybody in the room right now. But that you could pray intelligently for someone else. That you could say, well, I'm going to... I'm going to pray for Barry because he has this in his life right now. How many people can honestly... I'm sorry to just single you out. You just made eye contact, so you were right there. But how many people in here can honestly say, I know the struggles and the heartaches of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I'm going to pray for that. And honestly, that's a little terrifying. Because there's the, that sense of bringing the darkness to the light. But James is calling the church to confess their sins to one another. For us to confess our sins to one another. To build that openness and honesty and trust and humility to where we are praying for one another and each other's struggles and hardships. And he says, the prayers of the righteous have great power. Not in the sense that this is a, a, uh, a health and wealth gospel. This isn't a name it and claim it. Well, you know, James said that you know, a, a righteous prayer is going to deliver and have great power. So I'm going to righteously pray uh, for a million dollars. Like it's, it's not just like I'm going to pray that I'm going to win that lottery. No, this isn't the prayer of power that James is saying. He's saying that the prayers of the righteous are praying, pursuing the heart of God. Not just for a temporary purpose, but for an eternal purpose. And so he's showing that believers should be a people who pray for purpose. He gives, uh, he gives the, the example of the prophet Elijah. And for those of you that are not as familiar with your Old Testament history, Elijah was known as the great prophet. He was uh, like this hero of faith in the history and the culture of Israel. To the point that when Jesus arrived, they weren't asking him if he was the Messiah. They were asking him, are you Elijah? Elijah was a hero to the people. And they were longing for him to, to come back and to return. And so he is the one that James points to when he's talking about the prayers of the righteous. And in this passage in verses 17-18, through 18, he's actually summarizing in our Old Testament, 1 Kings chapters 17 and 18. Where Elijah prays and, the, and their, their immediate world is cast into a drought for over three years. And Elijah prays again, and the rain returns. James says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. 
And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now he shares this story not to demonstrate Elijah's power, but to demonstrate God's power. To demonstrate God's purpose. Because he's showing, he even says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah wasn't a holier person because of anything that set him apart. He was a normal person. He was a human born into sin with emotions and struggles and fears and doubts. But yet his prayers were prayers of faithfulness and righteousness. In fact, in uh, uh, James chapter 4, which I preached on a couple of, it seems like so long ago now, but a couple months ago, in James 4, he says, you do not have because you do not ask, talking about prayer, and you, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. James is saying that your prayers are often not answered because you're praying for your passions. You're praying for the selfish things that you want. The problem is that God is not some kind of spiritual Santa Claus that has a list and checks it twice. and He's not delivering uh, gifts to the, the good little Christian boys and girls. That this prayer is not some sort of a get out of hell free card. Elijah wasn't showing off when he did this. He did this. These prayers for the drought and for the blessing of the rain were to demonstrate God's power to call people to repentance, to return to the Lord, to turn from their selfishness, to turn from their sin, and come back to the God who heals people from their sin. Even Jesus, before His crucifixion, And his prayer was not for himself, but for God's purpose and plan. In Luke 22, Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. He knows that that he is about to, to suffer and be tortured and crucified. He knows this is coming. And he says, "If if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, was praying for the will and the purpose of God the Father. And can you say the same? Because I know I struggle with that. When I pray, far too often, I pray for the things that I want to see immediately happen. Or even... I struggle with wanting to pray for the removal of my conflict. I struggle with wanting to pray for my own selfish needs and desires. But when you pray, are you praying that God will provide you the stuff that you want? Are you praying that God will get you out of whatever trouble or conflict or chaos your life might be in at the moment? Or are you praying for the glory of God to show up in the midst of of your struggle and chaos and conflict. 
are you praying for a purpose beyond yourself? Beyond your immediate circumstances and looking forward to an eternal purpose? Because that's how James closes this letter to a persecuted church. He doesn't try to give them empty platitude. He doesn't tell them that his thoughts and prayers are with them. He reminds them to focus that believers should be purposeful people. Because it's a reminder that you and I need on a a daily basis because it's easy to be distracted from purpose amidst chaos and struggles when the world feels like it's falling apart. It's easy to take our eyes off of our focus onto our own struggle. And interestingly enough, when things are peaceful and everything seems like it's going right, when you feel like you have joy and comfort and abundance, once again, we're far too quick to take our eyes off of our focus and to rest in the comfort that we have found. We get into routines and rhythm. Even church itself becomes a thing to do instead of an, an identifier of who we are. Going to another week of church is less of an opportunity to worship and rejoice And it's almost like just passing another lamppost driving down the interstate. One after another, another lamppost, another lamppost. And we we end up going through years where going through church services is nothing different from passing lampposts on the side of the road. And James calls the church to remember their purpose. In verse 19 he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. That our purpose is to point people to the truth. That your job is not to save people, but it's to point people to to the truth of the God who saves people. Saving people is not dependent on you or your ability. Your job is to point them to the God who does. To remind them of the truth of brokenness and sin and a God who intervened. To remind them that God created man to be in relationship with Him, yet God did not stop man from choosing sin. And when man chose sin over that relationship with God, all of mankind since then has been tainted by sin and death and destruction. And that sin is what brings sickness and suffering and death. And that mankind, no man, I'm using that in the generic sense, men and women, but no man is able to do anything to remove that guilt that stain of sin and death. And yet God intervenes. Because God knows 
God knew that man could not do it on his own. That man did not have it within himself to overcome. And so God puts on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. To live a life of faithful obedience in a broken world. Who took your sin upon Himself when He was nailed to the cross. Who died, was buried, and rose again in victory over death, over sin, to give you His righteousness. Not because of your effort, but as Paul says in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved by faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God intervenes on your behalf, not because of anything that you have done, not because of anything that you're doing, not because of something down the road that God says, you know what, one day that person's going to do something just right. No, God intervenes on your behalf because it is His loving and merciful will to do so. And that is the truth that we point to. That is why I say that James is telling us to rest in God's power because it's not your own ability that you have to rest in. You cannot save yourself and you cannot save other people. But you can point others to the One who saves and redeems and restores. And so as we're entering this new year in just a couple days, I'm not asking you to make another resolution. I'm not telling you to be the best you that you can be. I'm going to ask you to rest and trust in the power of God. This God who has the power to save and redeem and restore. And that's my prayer for you. And that's my prayer for this church. That whatever happens in the future, whatever happens to Two Rivers Presbyterian Church here in North Charleston, South Carolina, that this church would be known as a church that trusts in the power of God. That this would be known as a church that prays for people. And that looks for God's eternal purpose. Not just trying to gain uh, numbers or membership. That this would not be a church of events or functions. That this would be a church of purpose and prayer pointing to the power of God. And so as we wrap up, not just this morning, but as we wrap up 2018, are you trying to find your rest in yourself and your own ability and your own power? Hoping that maybe just the right resolution will bring rest and purpose for a new year? Or, will you rest and trust in the power of God that you will pray for God's people that you will pray for God's purpose, His eternal purpose, and to be a purposeful person pointing to the truth of mercy and forgiveness found in Christ alone. Where will you find your rest? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You this morning confessing that far too often we 
We want to rest and trust in our own abilities. And time after time, we're exhausted and worn out because we cannot do it. And so we bring our pride and our self-reliance and we lay it at the foot of your throne. We bring our selfishness and our lack of prayer. And we say, God, we want to believe. Help us in our unbelief. And as we enter this new year, God, let us be a people of prayer that we would be marked not just by our own agenda, but that that we would long for and pray for Your purpose. Remind us of the Gospel that You revealed to us. And help us to point others to that very Gospel. That their salvation is not dependent upon our power or our ability. But that we are merely pointing to Christ and the power of His death and resurrection. Let us find our rest in You. We pray in the name of Christ and His power and His blood and His love. Amen.